Well, this morning we are going to kick off a new sermon series. This series of sermons is going to come from the Old Testament book of Malachi. So go ahead and grab your Bibles if you have your Bibles with you and go ahead and turn to Malachi now. You'll find Malachi at the very end of your Old Testament. It's the very last book in the Old Testament, which means it's right before the first book in the New Testament. It's right before Matthew. As you turn there and as you find Malachi, you'll find that Malachi is a relatively short book. It's just four chapters. In my Bible, it just takes up five pages. And because of that, this will be a relatively short sermon series. That's something about Malachi the book. Let's talk about Malachi the person. Malachi was one of God's prophets. He was a messenger of God to God's people in Judah. And we really don't know much about the prophet Malachi. We don't know much about the man who wrote this short book that wears his name. But we can pinpoint when this book was written. We can We can have some idea about the historical context, what was taking place when Malachi wrote this book. And understanding what was going on in Malachi's world and understanding what was going on with Malachi's people is really very important. It's crucial if we're going to understand what is going on in Malachi's short book. Just to kind of refresh our memories, I want to give a quick review of how God's people moved through history from King David to the time of the prophet Malachi. You'll remember that God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, had their glory days under King David and under his son, King Solomon. This was the very peak of Israel's power, the very peak of their influence, the very peak of their wealth. But you'll also remember that when Solomon died, those glory days died with him. Israel, the kingdom, was divided in two. And then we had Israel and its capital, Samaria, to the north, and we had Judah and its capital, Jerusalem, to the south. And this was the beginning of a steady decline in the fortunes of both of those kingdoms. And that steady decline mirrored the steady decline in their devotion to their God. And in spite of frequent warnings from God's prophets to turn back to God, Both Israel and Judah continued to be pulled away to the gods of the countries that surrounded them. And with God's people divided, with these nations divided and severely weakened, and with their faith also divided and also severely weakened, first Israel in the north and then Judah in the south were conquered by other nations. Israel's people were removed from their homelands, and they were dispersed and assimilated among the surrounding nations, essentially to never be heard from again. Judah's people had a different fate. They were exiled. They were exiled to Babylonia, and they were strangers in that strange land for some 70 years until the Persians came to power and King Cyrus allowed the exiled Jews to return to their homeland. So you'll remember that under the leadership of Ezra and under the leadership of Nehemiah, the exiles returned home again. And they began a long and difficult process of rebuilding the utterly destroyed city of Jerusalem and the completely demolished temple of God. 
And here's where Malachi enters God's story. Malachi was written after the return from Babylonian exile. It's written after the temple had been rebuilt. That's somewhat of the context of what came before Malachi. But we also need to put Malachi in context of what's going to come. See, we should keep in mind that Malachi was written some 450 years before the birth of Jesus Christ in the village of Bethlehem. The little village of Bethlehem that's just five and a half miles south of Jerusalem. And that's really important for us to remember because Malachi is not only the last book in our Old Testaments, it's also likely the last book written that is in our Old Testament. And if it's not the last book written, it's certainly one of the very last books written. Which means that Malachi temporarily closes the curtain on God's story that we have in the Bible. Temporarily closes the curtain for 450 years until that curtain is dramatically pulled back to reveal the Christ child in a manger in Bethlehem. So as we move through the book of Malachi, we'll be moving toward the birth of Christ. We'll be moving toward the Christmas story. And as a final bit of introductory information about Malachi, let me tell you this about the book of Malachi. So you need to understand that Malachi is presented as a courtroom scene. And in this courtroom scene, the accusers have gathered together. They've assembled to present their case. And the accused is also a present in the courtroom. He's been brought there to offer a defense against the accuser's charge. And that may not seem so strange, but shockingly, this courtroom scene opens with God on trial. God is the accused. And the people of Jerusalem are the ones who are the accusers. But that doesn't last very long. Because the mood quickly changes in the courtroom. Those positions are quickly reversed. And then God, the accused, becomes the accuser. And the people of Jerusalem, the accusers, Malachi's people, become the accused. They're the ones who are called to account. They are the ones who are called to defend themselves before God. I want you to imagine what an uncomfortable position that must have been. What an uncomfortable position for Malachi's people to go from accusing God to having God accuse them. To go from demanding and accounting from God to being called to account by God. To go from pointing an accusing finger at God to having God turn your accusations back on you. And that's why I want to give you a fair warning about this series that we're about to begin. I want to warn you to brace yourselves. Brace yourselves as we go through this series. I want you to brace yourselves because this won't be one of those series where we can just sit back and watch and be amused by the discomfort of other people. Sit back and watch and be amused at the discomfort of Malachi's people. 
want to warn you to brace yourselves because the story of Malachi's people may very well prove to be an uncomfortably familiar story to us. A couple of months ago on a Wednesday night, Skip Cole talked about Malachi. And Skip correctly and persuasively made the case that this little book, written four centuries before the birth of Christ, this little book has very direct and very important implications and parallels for us now, living 20 centuries after the birth of Christ. And as Skip was giving his short talk, I made up my mind that these parallels and these implications were too important and too timely not to be shared with a wider audience. So that's why we're here. That's why we're studying Malachi. And if you don't like it, you can blame Skip. (laughs) Because this is an uncomfortably familiar story. It's uncomfortably familiar because the story of Malachi's people is often, unfortunately, the story of us, the story of Netherwood's people. See, like us, Malachi's people were in-between people. Like us, they were living between the promises that God had made in the past and the time when those promises would ultimately be fulfilled. They were living in between the promises that God had made to restore his people and his nation and his temple to their former glory. In the time when that glory would actually be seen. They were living in between the glorious past of King David and King Solomon and the time that God's glorious future would be once more revealed. And the problem that they had in living as these in-between people was that the present, the present for Malachi's people seemed to be anything but glorious. The reality of the present for Malachi's people was that Judah was just a really small and really impoverished and really struggling province. The reality was that Judah had no real importance. It was of no real consequence in the greater Persian empire. The reality of the present was that none of Haggai and none of Zechariah's promises of glorious kingdom to come, of the new messianic kingdom that was yet to come, none of that had yet come to pass. The reality of this in-between living was that the promised blessings from heaven had not yet been poured out. Even though they had rebuilt the temple, even though they had restored worship, even though sacrifices were once again being offered. See, locusts and drought were still destroying their crops. Existence in Judah, this in-between living in Judah, continued to be a desperate battle just to survive. And so over time, in this in-between time, Malachi's people... God's people had become characterized by their disappointment. Disappointment in their lives and disappointment in their God. Their lives had become characterized by discouragement. Discouraged by their situation. And their lives had become characterized by their weak 
faith. They'd grown weary. They'd grown very tired. Malachi's people were tired of this in-between living. They were tired of waiting on God to act. They were tired of waiting for God to keep his promises. And because they were tired, they stopped. They stopped waiting expectantly. They stopped waiting with the expectation that God would act and he would act in their lives. And because they were tired, Malachi's people stopped waiting with confidence. They stopped waiting with the assurance that God would keep his word. And because they were weary, Malachi's people stopped trusting. They stopped trusting that the future would bring what God had promised it would bring. Sound familiar? You know, that's a pretty good definition of faith, isn't it? You know, faith is waiting with the expectation that God will act. Faith is waiting with the assurance that God will keep his word. Faith is trusting that the future will bring what God has promised it will bring. Faith is waiting expectantly and assuredly and trustingly, even during the in-between times. Especially during the in-between times. And so when Judah's faith began to fail, when they stopped expecting, when they stopped trusting, they instead started questioning. And they especially started questioning God's love for them. And this is when Malachi takes their questions straight to court. And the question before the court is this. Does God love his people? Does God love Judah? So the picture that you should have as we enter into this court scene is of the people, the accusers on one side of the courtroom, and God, the accused, is on the other side of the courtroom. And the people, the accusers, Malachi's people, They point their finger at God and they shout to the court, he doesn't love us. And God, the accused, replies with loving assurance. He simply says in Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, he says, I have loved you. See, God is saying, I have always loved you. I loved you in the past, I love you now, and I will love you in the future. I have loved you. And then all eyes turn to the accusers, all eyes turn to the people, wondering how they will respond to God's claim that he has always loved them and always will love them. And the people, the accusers, respond in cynical anger. They say, how have you loved us? They're saying, oh, really? Just how have you loved us? Oh, really? If you love us, then God, where's the glory? If you really have loved us, 
where are those promises that you made? And God's defense is really quite simple. How have I loved you? He says, just look at how I've treated you. And then look at how I've treated the nations that surround you. He says, look at how I have treated you, you, the descendants of Jacob. And then look at how I've treated everyone else, how I've treated the descendants of Esau. Still reading from verse 2. God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins, but this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. He says, you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. Well, how has God loved his people? How has God loved Judah? Well, he has forgiven them. Even though they chased after other gods, even after they prostituted themselves with foreign idols, even when they turned their backs on the Lord Almighty, Even when their wickedness was greater than the wicked nations that surrounded them, God forgave them. God took them back. How has God loved them? God has repeatedly forgiven them. And God not only forgave them, he brought them back home. He brought them back to Jerusalem. He brought them back to the land that he had promised them, just like he promised he would. They were able to come home even though they didn't have any political power of their own. Even though they didn't have any economic power of their own. Even though they didn't have any military power. Even though they were powerless to act on their own, God brought them home. How has God loved them? God brought them home. And when he brought them home, he didn't treat them like he treated the wicked nations around them. How has God loved them? God has waited on them. He's waited on them expectantly. And God has assuredly kept his word to them. And God has reliably worked to bring about exactly the future he promised them. How has he loved them? God's answer is, how have I not loved you? And it's here that the mood in the courtroom changes. It's here that the focus shifts in the courtroom. And it's also when the courtroom becomes uncomfortable. It becomes uncomfortable for Malachi's people, and the scene becomes uncomfortably familiar for us. Uncomfortably familiar for me and uncomfortably familiar for you. Because now God is going to ask a much bigger question. God, in the remainder of the book of Malachi, is going to ask the people, How have you loved me? How have you loved me? And in the next few weeks, we're going to ask ourselves 
some very important questions. We're going to place ourselves in the courtroom with Malachi's people, and we're going to allow God to ask us that same question, that same uncomfortable question. We're going to allow God to ask us, and how have you loved me? Over these next few weeks, we're going to sit together in the courtroom as God asks Malachi's people if they have loved him by worshiping him with reverence and with honor. But we won't be comfortable and we won't be amused observers of the discomfort of Malachi's people. We won't be amused while God is questioning them because we're going to join in their discomfort. Because God is also going to be asking us if we have worshipped God with reverence and honor. And we'll sit with Malachi's people as God asks us if we have loved him by bringing him our very best. And we'll sit with Judah as God asks us if we have loved him by giving to him and giving to him very first. And we'll sit with Jerusalem. Well, God asks us if we have loved him by truly sacrificing for him. We'll sit with those weary and tired people who lived 450 years before the birth of Christ. And we'll have God ask us if we have loved him by trusting him. If we've trusted him in this in between time. If we've trusted him to keep the promises that he has made, even though they haven't yet all been fulfilled. If we have trusted him to bring about the glorious future that's been promised by the glory of Jesus' resurrection. So I'll say it again, brace yourselves. Brace yourselves over the next few weeks for God's questions. Think of it this way. Court is now in session. I want you to know that over the last few weeks, we've been preparing ourselves to enter into this court. We've been preparing ourselves for these questions. Over the last few weeks, we've been reminding ourselves of God's love. We've been reminding ourselves of God's promises as we live in our in-between time. We've been preparing ourselves for this court by reminding ourselves that we aren't who we used to be. No, we're new creations. We've been reminding ourselves that because of Jesus Christ, we live new lives. We've been reminding ourselves that we no longer live because Christ lives in us. What we've been doing is we've been reminding ourselves of how God has loved us through Jesus Christ. So this morning, for the final time, as we prepare to enter into this court, as we prepare for God's questions, I want us to once more remind ourselves of God's love. I want us to talk about those words of God's love that have been engraved on our hearts so that they'll always be on our lips. So I'm going to ask everybody to stand. 
That's now. Let's go ahead and stand together. We're going to rehearse one last time those three short scriptures we've been rehearsing for the last several weeks as we prepare for court. First scripture that we've been rehearsing is 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. It says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Let's say that together. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. And we've been rehearsing Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. We were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We were buried with him in baptism so that we may live a new life. Let's say that together. We were buried with him in baptism so that we may live a new life. And finally, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 simply says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Let's say that together. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Let's pray together. Father, we know we are in your presence, and we thank you for allowing us into your awesome presence. Father, our desire is to be able to honestly say, Father, that we worship you with reverence and honor. Father, our desire is to be able to honestly say to you that we bring you our very best. Father, our desire is to be able to honestly say that we give to you first. Our desire is to be able to honestly say, Father, that we sacrifice for you. And Father, our prayer is to be able to honestly say that we trust in you and you alone. And Father, hear our prayer. Listen to our hearts. And Father, make us who you want us to be. And we pray this through the name of Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. So let me once more say, court is in session. Thank God that his court is filled with amazing grace. Let's sing about his amazing grace. Sing.